and we're going to be all pointing toward the Messiah, and it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful study. It has been, but it's long. So let's pray, and then let's jump right into our Bible study tonight. God, we, we love you, and uh, you are awesome, and you deserve all of our praise. You deserve all of our adoration. Lord, we've gathered here today, this evening, that we want to hear from you. We want you to speak to us. We desperately need to hear from you. We are constantly being bombarded with the world's system, the world's uh, motives, the world's morals. And God, those are increasingly uh, in opposition to you. So we need you to just calm our spirits and calm our, give us a peace, Lord. And may we look to you in faith and trust you. As we study this passage of Scripture, I ask you, Lord, that you would help me to adequately teach your word. And Father, I know that if you don't fill me with your spirit and you don't enable me, Lord, I, I can't do this. And so I ask you for your help. We pray for the Awana Club across the street, all the kids that are there and all the, the workers and the teachers. And Lord, we just you're just awesome. And we love you. And you're the reason we do all of this. Lord, as we enter into this holiday season, uh, even this month, may we be, may our hearts be filled with gratitude to you for your wonderful blessings on us. And then as we come closer to celebrating your birth, may we not forget why you came into this earth, this world, to save sinners. Lord, help us. Keep us focused. And again, I pray that you would help me to teach your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We're in Isaiah chapter 41. In this prophecy, the Lord puts the nations on trial to show them that he alone is God. I have uh, finished reading through the Old Testament in my daily Bible reading and now into the New Testament. And the reoccurring theme of the Old Testament is Israel, but not only Israel, but all these Gentile nations turning from the Lord into idolatry, actually worshiping handmade things, things of gold, things of, of uh, wood, and things that have no feeling, have no power, have no ability to do anything, and people would worship them. And you say, well, is idolatry today, do we, does anyone ever practice idolatry? Oh, yes. There are many people who put gold above God today, the almighty dollar. There are many people that put many things between themselves and God. And so God is going to call these nations, these Gentile nations, to trial, and he is going to question them. And in this trial, this trial is simply for them to acknowledge, to understand that he alone is God. He alone is God. And I will venture to say that many times in our lives, the greatest struggle we'll have, even being believers, is for us not, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but the greatest problems you and I will have is are we going to allow God to be God or are we going to try to be God of our own lives? Now, we can't allow God to do anything, obviously. God's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's, he's omnipresent. He's, he is everything. But there are many times where we try to put ourselves in the place of God. And that ends in destruction and ruin. 
So in this passage, God is going to show them that He alone is God and He is sovereign over all nations. Man, our world is in unrest right now. That kook over there in in, uh, Korea is launching missiles, just daring us, just daring us. Um, he, he, that man better be thankful that he has this president and not the other president because the other president would have done whooped him. He'd have done whooped him. But at any rate, um, he is God and he is sovereign over all these nations. And that's what this is about. Look at verse 1 of chapter 41. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near... Then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. This is a call to a trial or a judgment. God is challenging those nations who refuse to wait upon the Lord. Remember in verse 31 of chapter 40, he said, Those who wait on the Lord, he will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. But those who rejected that... The Lord says, bring your strongest argument. Bring your strongest argument. Come. The court is open. The court is ready to hear your case. You come and plead the case. But let me ask you some questions. Verses 2 through 4, these are the questions that God asks of these nations. Number 1, look at verse 2. Who raised up one from the east? Now, who is this one from the east? Well, let's see what else he says about him. Who raised up this one from the east who is in righteousness, called him to his feet, who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings, who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning." God says, who is this one who has been called? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Cyrus, the king of Persia. God is going to raise up Cyrus, king of Persia, and he is going to accomplish his righteous will by conquering Babylon. Remember, Babylon had conquered and taken into exile the Jewish people. He is going to raise up Cyrus for his own purpose. Cyrus was not a God-fearing man. He was an evil man, but God in his sovereignty chose him to deal out or mete out judgment to Babylon. They conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., and he allowed the exiles to return to Jerusalem. Cyrus was the founder of the Persian Empire, and he ruled from 550 to 530 B.C., And the Lord says, who is the one that called him? Who's the one that allowed him to do this? Who's the one that gave him the power to be ruler over kings? Who's the one that drove stubble to his bow? Who's the one that pursued and passed safely and he he conquered all of these empires? Who is it that allowed him? And God says in verse 4, I, the Lord, am first and with the last. God answers his question. He said, it was I... That called him. The reason he's calling these people to this is saying, Show me your power. You nations, show me your power. How can you raise up anyone? How can you do anything? Is it not I? And you're familiar with this term, the first, and I am the last. And you know, I am the great I am statements. So 
God is saying that he is sovereign. He alone is sovereign. This is a distinct declaration of God's sovereignty. Now, when I say God's sovereignty, it means that God is in control and over everyone, everything, all the time. As a matter of fact, I wrote down on the back of my paper after I'd finished, I was perusing through and I found this statement on the, the, the web and I wrote it at the bottom of my paper. I quote R.C. Sproul once said, If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free from God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. But he says this, and I quote, Thankfully, there are no rebel molecules. Aren't you glad for that? We look at the world and we see all that's going on and we see all these potentates come to power. We see all these whacked out individuals exerting their force and we wonder, is this the end? Is this the end of the world? Guys, listen, God's in control. Now these guys, these Jewish people are in exile and they're probably wondering what in the world is going on. Will we ever be in our homeland? This prophecy comes... And one scholar says it was about, the prophecy was given about 100 years actually before it happened. I can't verify that. But if it did, I mean, isn't that wonderful here? The exiles are, they're, they're freaking out because they are, they are in trouble. They wonder if they'll ever be the nation that God has called them to be. And God questions the nations and says, where were you? Who are you? Who is the one that called this? Is it not I? the first and the last, and everything in between. That's, that's, that's God. That's God. Now in verses 5 through 7, instead of turning to the Lord, when they saw Cyrus approaching, these nations turned to one another for help, and they made more idols. Isn't that crazy? You know what someone said, if you want to get out of a hole, the first thing you got to do is what? Stop digging, right? If you keep digging, you're going to go deeper. The first thing you need to do to get out of the hole is stop digging. Instead of turning to the Lord, look at verse seven, or verse 5, excuse me, all these nations turned to help each other and they made more idols that could do nothing for them. Look at verse 5. The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came... Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So what did they do? Verse 7, So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. You just make a few more idols and we'll be okay. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, Is it ready for the soldering? Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. Now, before we go and uh, be too critical for these nations, let's examine our lives for a while. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've been in trouble and you reached out to the Lord and you, you thought, you know, I need to do this, this, and this, and when you did this, this, and this, you made a bigger mess than if you would have just taken your hands off <clears throat> and trusted the Lord? Am I the only one that's ever done that? Sure. Sure we have. We turn to the things that we can make, the things that we can manufacture. That's human nature. I'm going to men, we're going to pull it up by the bootstraps and we're going to do this thing, right? Uh, Howard Hendricks used to say, when I try, I fail. When I trust, 
he succeeds. Now you think about that. Because all of our life, what do we do in church? What do we do when we're in trouble? The first thing we're going to do when we're in trouble, I'm going to pray more, I'm going to give more, I'm going to attend more, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, it's all about my doing more. Well, these nations did that, but not towards God. They moved away from God and said, well, we're going to come together, we'll make an alliance, and what we'll do is we'll make more of these idols, and if we have all these idols, surely one of these idols can help us. But guess what? It didn't. It did not help them. But in the midst of this, God says something refreshing to Israel. Look at verse 8. But, remember, whenever you see but, I get excited about this. I love Bible study. Whenever you see but, it's in contrast to the thought that you were going down. The thought you were going down were these nations that were turning from God and they were seeking help from each other and making their own idols. He says, but in contrast to them, you, Israel, are my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Oh, this is a loaded verse. He identifies Israel as his servants. His servants. And then he identifies them as chosen. We all know that God chose Israel, the nation of Israel. Israel is the apple of God's eye. We all know that. We believe that and we stand with Israel because of that. And then he says this about them, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Friend denotes much more intimacy than a servant. A friend is much higher than a servant. Now, why would he say Abraham, my friend, because God is reiterating to the people that he made a promise to Abraham, a covenant with Abraham, and that he would not in any way forget the covenant he made with his friend Abraham. There used to be a song, Abraham, I am a friend of God. He is not ever going to turn away from his covenant. It may not look like to Israel right now that he is going to keep that covenant, but they are not sovereign. They do not know what God knows. They are not as strong and mighty and powerful as God, so they cannot presume to know anything on God other than what God has revealed to them, and that was the promise, and he will keep his promise. Verse 9, You, speaking to Israel, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth... And called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. God reassures them that in the last days he will regather Israel. Those whom he had dispersed uh, as a punishment, but he had totally not cast them away. There's a faithful remnant that God will bring back together. And they will be in the land, that promised land of Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. Based on their being his servant, based on them being chosen, God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In the midst 
of God questioning all these nations that have turned to idols rather than God. God looks at his chosen people, Israel, and he says, Fear not. I'm going to be with you. Do not be dismayed. I'm your God. I'm going to strengthen you. Listen, every nation in the world can point a rock at Israel and threaten them, but Israel will not be wiped off the face of the map because God has a promise with Israel. And God's promises are as sure as I'm standing here and you are sitting there because He is sovereign. And that is the whole point of this text. Verse 11. Behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and be disgraced. Israel is assured by God that through His help... The enemies of Israel will be destroyed. Why? Because God will help them. Do you know when I was in Israel, I had my picture made with some soldiers, Israeli soldiers, young girls, boys, everyone, when they become of age, everyone in Israel has to go into the military. The military has different divisions. The police is part of their military. It's not uncommon when you ride on a public transportation to see a man or a woman with, a, with a, uh, a rifle and a gun on their side coming home from work. Not uncommon at, all, uncommon at all. And they have a great army. They're great fighters. If you read some of the history of their wars, it's amazing the warriors that Israel has produced. But even in their ability to fight and even in all of their um, strength, God is the one who is the iron dome of protection over Israel. God is the one. And he says, all these nations that are incensed, all these nations that come up against you, they're going to be destroyed. They shall be as nothing, verse 11, and those who strive with you shall perish. You go through, as you read through the Old Testament, and you see all these little countries, and they don't even exist anymore because they came against Israel. There's nothing there. Verse 12, you shall seek them and not find them. Why? Because God's going to deal with them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. Hezbollah, all these Taliban, all these that want to destroy Israel, they're going to be nothing. They will be nothing. Verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Man, isn't that reassuring? In the midst of this questioning He is revealing his sovereignty. How is he revealing his sovereignty? He began by telling them that no one knows what God knows. He began by telling them that no one can do what God has done. And he continued to tell them that no one will do what God can do. Verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. 
I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Wow, this is good. Worm. Worm. Israel was viewed by other nations as a worm. Little Israel, what are they going to do? We're going to wipe them off the face of the map. I've got all these weapons. I've got all these idols. We're going to destroy them. No, you won't. I will help you, says the Lord. And your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. This word Redeemer is a near relative. It's a protector of the family. He had the responsibility to buy back what was a relative lost in the event of a death. You remember the story of Ruth and um, the kinsman redeemer and how he purchased all the property in her. John MacArthur writes in his study Bible on page 1016 this, The term occurs five more times in connection with the title Holy One of Israel. Just as the Lord purchased His people from the bondage of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb, He is to do the same from their worldwide exile by the blood of the true lamb, Jesus Christ, when they turn to Him in faith. What God is saying, the thing that will allow the re worldwide regathering to come place is the shedding of the blood of the lamb the kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be the vehicle which will allow them to, those who believe in faith, to be gathered together. In the midst of this questioning and revealing His sovereignty, He lays out wonderfully the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming King. He is everywhere. Old Testament, every page, Jesus is there. In verses 15 and 16, when Christ comes, He will grind the, those nations who rejected. He will grind those nations who uh, practiced idolatry and came up against Israel. He will grind them into the threshing sledge. Verse 15, Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind will scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. That threshing sledge was a, a, an instrument that was made with a slant and it had sharp teeth. And they could take the grain and stuff, and they could rake it across it, and it would separate the chaff from the wheat. And in that, he is saying, this is what's going to happen when the Holy One comes. He's going to take those, all those, those um, unbelievers, those who rejected, and he's going to separate them from the true believers. And you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel, the King of all glory. Man, this is, this is wonderful. Don't you just love Jesus? Aren't you glad you're on the winning side? I am, I, I, I'm glad. I don't know. I'm just glad. I'm just saying that. Verse 17, God's provision for the exiles. Notice this in verse 17. The poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. Those 
exiles, those who were taken into Babylonian captivity. They were plucked out of their land. They're true believers. They, they're seen, viewed as poor and needy. They're thirsty. They're seeking water, but there is none. He says, I, the Lord, will hear them. Why? Because he's sovereign. He knows where they are. He's never taken his eyes off of them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Aren't you glad that more than one place in the Bible we are given the promise that God will not forsake his people? Now, if God says something one time, he means it, right? If he says something two times, he really means it, right? I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. Let me ask you a question. Can someone tell me who can open the rivers in desolate heights? The rivers are here, it's desolate there, and he's going to open the rivers here that the rivers go up there. Can you do that? Do you know anyone that can do that? Well, see, there's with these plants and modern technology. Don't go there. That's ridiculous. We're talking about the sovereign God who can change direction of water flow. He can make water go high, low. As a matter of fact, he's the one. Did you know that it never rained until Noah's Ark? The, the water came up from the ground of the earth and not watered it, right? And so when Noah's told to build an ark, it's going to rain. It's going, what? Noah, you're drunk, man. No, that's after I get off the boat. But anyways, um, he said, he said uh, it's going to rain. What's rain? But when the rain got up to about here, the floodwaters, they were clinging, scratching on the boat. God can change things that are unchangeable. The fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. It's about a revelation of His sovereignty to people who refused His sovereignty, who refused to believe it. You're going to come and talk to me. It's always cracked me up. People talk about evolution and like, oh, it's going to destroy us. It ain't going to destroy us. It's, it's, it's fallacy. If you think that two balls floating in space collided together and everything exists, or that some little amoeba was swimming in the ground and, or in the water and then it came up on the bank and then it grew legs and it walked and, and this is the end of evolution? Look at us. That's a bad case for evolution, isn't it? I mean, it takes more faith to believe that two balls floating in space collided together or some little lizard came up on the, out of the water and grew legs and walked and then turned into a monkey. and then Well, well I, there's some people I believe that came from monkeys. But anyways, um, that's a whole other subject. But the point I want to make is this. This is, this is ridiculous. When you reject God, you reject His sovereignty. When you say that God didn't make this earth. You're rejecting his sovereignty. He's going to cause trees to grow where trees normally would not grow. Where science says trees cannot grow, he's going to make them grow. He's going to make rivers where they say there's no way a river can be there. Because he's sovereign. Science does not have the final say. God does. 
He, the hand of the Lord has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Verse 21, here's the call to present again, the second call to the trial. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Can any of them tell us what will happen in the future? No. It always, it always cracked me up. There used to be a, a place on Route 60 in uh, Huntington, West Virginia. On the way up on Route 60, there was a woman that was a fortune teller. And I don't remember her name. I called her Madam Zonga because I couldn't remember her name. But she had a sign that said this, Madam Zonga. Knows all, sees all, tells all. Honk so we know you're here. If you see all, know all, and tell all, why we have to honk to let you know we're here? Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us the things to come. God issues a challenge. You let these false prophets, you let these, you let these idols... Tell us what's going to happen. I've laid it out for you what's going to happen. And do you know that this is not the only prophet that laid out the coming of the king of Jesus Christ? Just about every minor prophet and most of the major prophets all detail the coming of the king. Verse 23, show us the things that are come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Come on, idols, speak. Speak. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. God's challenging them. Show us your power, idols. Show us your power. Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. It's the most despicable thing to worship a man-made object that can do nothing for you. There are people today all across the United States of America, they are worshiping the almighty dollar. They bow to the money. Money is their God. And they are the most miserable men and women. You know why? Because that money can do nothing for them. And as we see as the markets decline and everything gets worse, our dollar is going to be less and less and less valuable. But I'll tell you this. We have a God who's sovereign that can put a river where there are no rivers. we got a God that can plant a tree. God's given us promises in his word that he's, uh, the, the psalmist wrote that I've been young and I'm now old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or begging seed. He's going to take care of us. But these idols can do nothing and those who bow before these idols are an abomination. Idols is a serious thing. It's a serious thing. Anything that you put between you and God is an idol. Anything that you use that aids you in worshiping God is an idol. Pictures are not God. They're not God. And you look at a picture and say, oh, this is Jesus. He's lovely. That's not Jesus. That's a picture. That's an idolatry. You say, well, you're kind of passionate about that. Yes, I'm passionate because if you read the Old Testament and see what happened to people who dabbled in idolatry, it does not end well. Verse 25, he comes back to Cyrus. I have raised up one from the north and he shall come. See, you idols can't tell the future, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. 
God says, I'm going to tell you. I've raised up someone from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name. Boy, that's most interesting, isn't it? And he shall come against the princes as though mortar, uh, mortar as potter, as the potter treads clay. Now listen to this. He shall call on his name. Do you know, do you know, if I could go to Ezra, and I think we'll have it on the screen here, um, the, this King Cyrus ended up calling on the name of the Lord. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord of the God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let men of his place help him with silver, gold, goods, livestock, besides free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. He, he declares God. He, he, he was used by God. And he eventually declared a proclamation that he is God. And he released the exiles to return to Jerusalem. Look at, uh, look at verse 20. Six. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and the former times that we may say he is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, Look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word? Indeed, they're all worthless. All these idols are worthless. All these false prophets, they're worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. God says, listen, this is the truth of the matter. And I, I, I want to just quickly give you three points of application, or four points of application, and, and, and we'll go home. Number one, God is sovereign over all nations. Acknowledge Him. God is sovereign over all nations. Acknowledge Him. God does whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants. He uses whomever He wants. He can use a pagan nation. He did more than one time for His purposes because He's God, because He's sovereign, because He's in control of everything. He can do what He wants. He is the boss. We are not. God is sovereign over all nations. Acknowledge Him. Number two, God will keep His promises to His people. Trust Him. Trust Him. I'm sure in the midst of Babylonian captivity, it would be difficult to trust the Lord. Yet, God made a promise and His promises are true. There's never been one promise that God made that He did not keep. He keeps them fully because He is God. I even love in the, I even love in the Bible where God 
says, I swear by myself because there's none greater than me. It's like, you know, we, I swear to God. Well, we're not supposed to do that. But God says, there's no one greater than me to swear. I swear by myself. Trust him. Number three, God will destroy useless, worthless idols. Be faithful to him. Be faithful to God. Every one of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of what we've done with our salvation since we've been saved. But now we won't be there uh, for uh, salvation or losing our salvation. That was dealt on, on the cross. That was settled on the cross. But we will be judged for works or loss of works, or loss of rewards, excuse me. Rewards or loss of rewards. And God will destroy useless, worthless idols. Be faithful to him. Don't let anything come between you and God. And lastly, I'd just like to say this. I know it's obvious, but I need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. Everyone needs to be reminded. There's no one like God. Worship only him. Worship only him. God is sovereign over all nations. Acknowledge him. God will keep his promises. Trust him. God will destroy useless, worthless idols. Be faithful to him. And lastly, there's no one like God. Worship him. Let me finish and then I'll, uh, I'll get to you. Hold on to that. Okay, don't lose the thought. Okay? So guys, listen. Let me tell you, encourage you. Let me encourage you. Please, please, turn to the Lord. Stay fresh. Stay hot with him. Stay in the word. Worship him all that you can. As it gets, when it's hard, get in the Word of God. When it's hard to pray, pray anyways. He is worth it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for this day. We ask you to watch over us as we go out of here. Bless us, Lord, and be with us. Strengthen us. And may we be faithful to you and love you. In Jesus' name, and amen. Brother.